Well, good morning, church. Can I just begin by saying this morning, you are loved. God loves you. And even though we're all messed up, we're all messed up in our own ways, God loves you. And we love you. So we're glad that you're here this morning. And if you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know that one of the things that we need more than anything else right now in this season is more of God, not less, more of God. And it's for that reason that here at Redemption Bible Chapel, we preach expositionally through the word of God, because this is what you need. This is your heavenly food. This is your sustenance. And so we preach through the word of God. So I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles on whatever format you have it and turn to Judges in the Old Testament. And today we're going to look at a lengthy portion of Scripture, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Now what we've been doing is we've been asking you to read ahead of time because there's a lot of Scripture in here. And we're taking a 30,000 foot look at this. And the story we're going to look at today is a disturbing story. And we would walk away from this going, how is this even possible? Does God demand something like this? But I don't want you to get distracted by the story itself, but by what God would have us learn through this story. And as we get into this, I need to give thanks to our kids' ministry leaders. I need to give thanks to our, all our ushering Leaders, I need to give thanks to all of our worship leaders. You see, these people come here early on a Sunday morning, and COVID has kind of forced us into two services. They come early, and they stay late. Our worship team gets here Thursday night, spends the evening here rehearsing. Then they get here between 7 and 7.30 on a Sunday morning. And they don't leave till 12.30, 1 o'clock. Why would they do that? Why would the people in kids' ministry serve on a Sunday morning when they could have that time off? Why would our ushers come in and serve two services on a Sunday morning when that may for some of them be the only day that they could rest and relax? Why would our worship team come in Thursday night, give up all of Thursday night, get here early on Sunday morning between 7 and 7.30 and stay almost till 1 o'clock and serve in both services. You know what the answer is? Because it's an act of worship. It's how they choose to worship God. That's why. Because all of life is about worship. It is. And you're going to see that today. Now let me ask you this question. Have you ever worshipped God with conditions? Have you ever wanted or needed something so bad that you found yourself bartering or trying to make a deal with God? God, if you do this for me, then I'll... You ever done that? Lord, if you do this, then I'll faithfully give myself to reading my Bible every day. If you do this, then from now on, Lord, I'll faithfully attend church. If you do this for me, Lord, I will give wherever it's needed. 
if you do this for me, Lord, I'll serve wherever is needed. If you do this for me, Lord, I won't ask for any more favors. But to be honest, the things that I've listed here are some of the deals that I've actually tried to make with God. What about you? Have you ever tried to barter with God? And if so, how? But have you ever, have you ever stopped to ask yourself that if you do this, what is it that you actually understand about God? You know, as we look at these passages today from a 30,000-foot level, I want you to see that as horrifying as the story is that you're going to see here today, it's all about worship. And in these three chapters, you're going to see that we were created for worship. But secondly, we're going to see that we serve. This is very important. We serve what we worship. And thirdly, we need to know the God that we worship. Now, last Sunday, we saw the devastating consequences of Israel choosing their own king instead of trusting God to rule over them. And they chose a king by the name of Abimelech. And we saw the injustices as a result of that decision and how the Lord restored justice or peace by bringing justice upon them. Now, today, as we begin to dive into chapter 10 and verse 1, we read that after Abimelech... A man by the name of Tola arose, and he saved Israel, and he judged them for 23 years. And after he died, another man by the name of Jair, and now we say more Jair, if you will, but the more proper announciation is actually Jair. So I've just gone with Jair, kind of anglicized it a little bit. Now, he's from the tribe of Manasseh in Israel. And he lives in Gilead, which if you picture the map of of the land of Canaan, you have, you have a river that we also know so well. It runs north to south. It's the Jordan River. And Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan River. And that's where he's from. And he ruled Israel for 22 years. And then we have this interesting statement in verse 4 of chapter 10 that tells us that Jair had 30 sons and his Sons rode 30 donkeys and that they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair. Now, basically, these cities were tent cities. But it's interesting. Why would they put this, in, this little note in there that his sons rode 30 donkeys? Now, it's important for us to notice this because it helps us understand the political and economic climate during the ruling years of Jair. You see, donkeys were the symbol of peace and prosperity. We would think horses, but no, for them, it was donkeys. Rulers in those days, in times of peace and prosperity, would ride donkeys. So the fact that Jair and his sons rode donkeys helps us understand that things were going well in Israel at this time. And after Jair dies, we now zoom in again, like in a movie, we zoom in closer and we see the story that unfolds before us today, but we also again see the sin cycle that we've seen throughout the book up to this point. The sin cycle that I'm talking about is this. We see that Israel serves God, but then they end up abandoning God. 
And then because they abandoned God, God then hands them over to their enemies. And when God hands them to, over to their enemies, Israel then cries out to God to save them. And then God raises up a judge who delivers them. And so we've seen the cycle over and over in the book of Judges. And this chapter, or these three chapters, are no exception, except what's new to this chapter is that we see that Israel now plunging deeper into the depths of idolatry, the sin of idolatry. So I want to show you our first point in these three chapters this morning, and that is that we are created to worship. So starting at verse 6 of chapter 10, here's what we read. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The gods of Syria, see here's what they've added now. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and they did not serve him. You see, up to this point, whenever Israel abandoned God for false gods, they ended up worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, which were the Baals and the Ashtaroths. But now, they've sunk to a whole new level, and they've brought in a whole new host of false gods from outside of the borders of Canaan. They bring in the gods of Syria, which is northeast of Canaan. They bring in the gods of Sidon, that's more northwest of Canaan. They bring in the gods of Moab and Ammonites, and they're east of Canaan. And the gods of the Philistines, which are west of Canaan. So they've brought in all this, this plethora of false gods. Is one god not enough? Why keep hopping from god to god? There's numerous answers to that, but I want to I streamline one idea this morning that we see threading throughout these three chapters. So if they keep abandoning the one true living God, why then do they keep going after other false gods? And it's because you and I were created to worship. We were created for worship. Now, worship is the act of ascribing glory to God. Psalms 113.3 tells us, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. In Luke chapter 4, verse 8, Jesus said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's what we were created to do. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we read, so whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, everything you do in life is to be done for the glory of God. This is what we're created to do. That's why even when Israel abandoned the true living God, they gave themselves in worship to false gods. Because we were created for worship. And we will worship. And you and I will either worship the true and living God. Or we'll worship the God of our own making. Or we'll worship ourselves. But either way, 
we will worship something because it's intrinsic to our nature. So the question we need to ask is, what do I worship? What do I actually worship? Well, coupled to that, then the question arises, well, how do I know what I worship? One of the ways you can know what you worship is found in the next point that's laid out for us in the following verses. And that is that we serve what we worship. Chapter 10, verses 7 through 16. Follow along. I'm going to scan through this. It says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, meaning his anger, his anger was aroused. He became angry with Israel because they forsook him for false gods. And we read on, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines. These were the enemies from the, from the west. And into the hands of the Ammonites, who were the enemies from the east. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. So if you imagine, again, imagine that, that line, the river Jordan, they were on the east side of the river Jordan. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So here we see that things are escalating. Before they were only oppressing the Israelites on the one side, on the east side of the Jordan River, but now, now they're going all out. Now they've come further into the land of Canaan, so that they're not only oppressing the Israelites from the tribe of Gilead, or in the land of Gilead, the tribe of Gad, but now also the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim. And so it's just, it's pressing down upon them. It's increasing. And so finally Israel decides to turn to the Lord. Now follow me in verse 10. I want you to pick up on the key words here. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Now listen to the Lord's response. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, from the Sidonians also and the Amalekites? And the Mayonites, not Mennonites, Mayonites, that oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me, and here it is again, served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Why does God tell them to do this? Because they know. They're, those aren't real gods, and they can't save them. Israel understands that, and we recognize that by verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us what seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Listen. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The reason the Lord became angry with them is because they had forsaken the only true God. 
the only God that exists. And they turn to serve false gods. And Israel recognizes that they've sinned. So they call out to the Lord to save them. And then God, in response, gives them a long list of enemies that he's actually saved them from in the past. Something only a real God could do. And yet they abandoned him and they went and served false gods. So God tells them, I'm not going to save you anymore. Go and cry out to these gods that you've chosen. Let them save you. But Israel persists this time. We've sinned. Do with us as you see fit. But please just save us this day. And here's what we see different than in times past. Whether the Lord was going to save them or not, they put away their foreign gods and they served the Lord. This is repentance. Repentance, as you know, is turning away from sin towards God. But here's what I want us to see. The, the key word that we see repeated over and over and over in this, in this section is that we serve what we worship. We serve, we serve, we serve what we worship. You can't separate the two. The two are intrinsically connected. Nowhere in all of Scripture are worship and serving separated. So you see, we were created for worship. But with worship comes serving. The two were connected. And we serve whatever it is we worship. So if you truly want to know what you worship, ask yourself this question. What is it that you treasure above all else? What is it that you are serving above all else? What is it in your life that if it was taken away from you that you would abandon God? You may have a form of godliness, worshiping God, but if this one thing would change in your life, you'd walk away from him. I've seen marriages among couples who were involved in the work of the ministry at the church and then something happened within the marriage and not just one spouse but both spouses end up leaving God altogether because their marriage was what they worshipped not God and you can apply this to any realm any area anything in your life if you want to know what you truly worship Look at what you're serving above all else. Are you maybe serving yourself? You know, in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, Paul writes and says that in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves. And personally, at least in my almost 50 years of being alive, I have never seen the self-love movement be any stronger than it is right now. I have never in my lifetime, and I'm not saying it didn't exist before, but it's become apparent, at least through social media, that people are a very narcissistic people, and it's all about me.
Are you worshiping a relationship above God? Do you worship security? Do you worship comfort? In this season, it's a great question to ask. What's more important to you, God or comfort? Do you worship approval? Do you worship success? Do you worship wealth? You see, even greed is listed in the Bible in Ephesians 5, 5 as idolatry. We can make a God out of anything, even if it's not in a physical form. So here's what we see. We know that we were created for worship. And we know that we will worship something. You may say, well, I, don't, I don't really worship anything. Yes, you do. You do. We will worship something. And we serve what we worship. But we were created to worship God. Because to worship anything else is idolatry, which is sin. But there's one more thing we need to know. And that's my third point for this morning. And that is that we need to know the God we worship. You see, as war was looming over Israel, the people that were living in Gilead, the, the, the Israelites that were living there, tried to figure out who the man would be that was going to save them this time. And so if you follow along in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, we're introduced to a man by the name of Jephthah. And listen to his story. Chapter, uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 1 through 3. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the daughter of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And some translations say went out raiding with him. So here we have the story of this guy, Jephthah. We just see the story here. Now, here's the thing that I want to note also. That in the previous stories, God always chosen, raised up the judge that would save them, except for Abimelech. And we saw how that turned out. But now here again, it's the leaders of Gilead that went looking for a leader, for a judge to save them. And they find this guy Jephthah. And he's had a rough life. This guy truly has daddy issues. His mother was a prostitute. And it's believed that she was a Gentile or a Canaanite and not an Israelite. So that only strained things even more. So he wasn't truly, fully one of them. He was an illegitimate child. And all his brothers rejected him. And in fact, end up running him out of town. Jephthah flees northeast from his country to a place called Tob, where we read that worthless fellows collected around him. Now, some translations, as I already said, stated that 
They went out raiding with Jephthah. And to us, that would kind of make sense, man. He's been rejected on every level, right? His own father didn't even keep him around, but allowed his sons to run him out of town. Where's the fatherly love and all of that, right? And so we would, and then we see these, the terminology that the Bible uses here, these worthless fellows surrounding him. So we get this idea that this guy could be a thug, right? And he's going out and he's raiding people. So, you know, he, because he grew up in a bad situation, he just became this bad man. However, that may be correct, but I don't think it's actually that accurate. I actually think when we spend more time researching him and digging what else the Bible says about him, because he's actually listed in the New Testament in Hebrews 11 as one of the men of faith. I think he's more like a biblical Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. You see, many scholars believe that the people he was reading were not his own people from Israel, but the people from the Ammonites who were oppressing his people and raiding them. He really is more like a, a Robin Hood. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually writes that anybody that came to him, regardless of where they came from, their status in life or their condition, he received them and he actually ended up paying them a wage. So he really is like a Robin Hood. And because of his exploits by raiding the Ammonites, he becomes this seasoned warrior and he gains this notoriety for his exploits with his band of misfits and outcasts. And then verses 5 through 8 follow this. See how this story unfolds now. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. See, now it's like, hey, where's this guy going to come? Who's going to save us? Hey, wait a minute. Remember that dude we ran out of town by the name of Jephthah? The dude, the son of a prostitute? Gilead's son? Verse 6. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, uh, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Look, if you do this, yeah, we're going to make you our leader. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? You see, just as Israel had rejected God and then came back to him when they were in desperate need of help, they, they're doing the same thing with Jephthah. Didn't you hate me? Didn't you reject me and drive me out of my own father's house? And now you're coming to me for help? There's such a resemblance here of what they've, what they've done to God. And like God, in all the previous stories, Jephthah agrees to fight the Ammonites. And if God gives him the victory, then he'd be the head of the Gileadites. So Jephthah tries to tries peaceful diplomacy with the, with the Ammonites. 
which doesn't work, so he prepares for battle. And I'm just I'm skimming through this very quickly here. But I want you to pay attention. Now, go down to verse 29, and we read this. So they're preparing for battle. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Now, see, here's what we need to understand. Whenever the people of Israel went into battle... The way you knew that victory was assured was that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon the leader. And that's what happens here. They're preparing for battle, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead, Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So here they are. They're now facing their enemies. Battle is about to ensue. And Jephthah does something unusual. Verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. You give me the victory, Lord. If you give me the victory, I promise you, Lord, that whatever comes out of the doors of my house, the first thing that comes out when I come home, I will dedicate to you, and I'll sacrifice it to you. Here's the thing. Jephthah didn't have to make this vow. The Spirit of the Lord was already upon him, assuring him the victory. And yes, Jephthah goes out and he subdues the Ammonites. Victory has been won. Voices go up in a cheer and they make their way home. But remember the vow that Jephthah made. Verses 34 through 39. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She's rejoicing because God has given him the victory. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes. He said, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You've become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord? This is incredible. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions, because see, the, the concept here is what she's grieving over is that she'll never be married and bear children. Right? So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she departed she and her companions, and they wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, 
who did with her according to his vow that he had made. What a very disturbing idea. He had made this vow to God and he ends up sacrificing his daughter as a burnt offering to God. And what's so incredibly disturbing about this is that Jephthah didn't have to make this vow. God had already given him the victory. The question then is, then why did he? Then why did he still do this? Because nowhere did God require this of him. The answer is because he didn't know God. Because he didn't know God, he treated the true living God like a pagan God. You see, if he would have known God, he would have known that in Deuteronomy 12, 31, states that God hates human sacrifice. The only human sacrifice God was ever pleased with was the sacrifice of his own son through whom you and I have received the forgiveness of sins. That's the only sacrifice, human sacrifice God has ever been pleased with. Furthermore, the difference here too is that he had the power to raise himself from the dead. Now this wasn't the day of Jesus yet. He was, his time was coming in the future. But Jephthah didn't have to do this. But you see, not knowing the true living God and having been so influenced by the pagans and how they viewed their created gods, he viewed the real God the same way. See, the pagans believed that the way to please their gods was to offer human sacrifice. And since it's believed that in that day house pets weren't a thing, it's possible that yes, he actually had intended to offer some form of human sacrifice which was common in the land of Canaan. But perhaps he did not expect it to be his daughter, maybe a servant that would come out of his house first to serve him. And what's even more compelling is that his daughter does not plead with him to break his vow, but encourages him to keep it. So you see, and she does this too because she's learned from her father what it is to be disobedient to these pagan gods, right? This concept of God that they have. You know, it's not long after this, maybe somewhere, maybe even within 50 years of this event, that the prophet Samuel says to King Saul in 1 Samuel 5, 20, or 15, 22, that it is, it is, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. This is an incredibly disturbing story. And we think of this, we would be, we're like, I would never do this. How could someone do this? Well, you see, 
Jephthah so desperately wanted this victory that he tried to bargain with God. So at the end of the day, if that's what he's doing, bargaining with God, are we really any different than Jephthah? Lord, whatever comes out of my house, if you grant me the victory, will be the first thing I, I sacrifice up to you. You see, that's the bargaining chip of a man who doesn't know God. But you see, you and I have the immeasurable blessing of knowing God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God has given to us his word in the canon of scripture so that we can know him. And if you really want to get to know God, then read and get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus. First Corinthians, or sorry, Colossians 1, 15, 19 tells us that Jesus is the Im image of the invisible God, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Hebrews 1.3, we read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, the exact imprint of his nature. So if you want to know God, read the word of God and get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus so that you know and that I may know how to rightfully worship God so that when we do worship, it is acceptable worship to him and not an abomination to him. Furthermore, because of Jesus and his sacrifice and his resurrection, we read in Romans 12, 1, when Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, telling them, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and I'll put in here, since Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice, he says this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. That's what's required of us, to be a living sacrifice, to live our lives sacrificially to the Lord. Not by killing ourselves, but to giving ourselves for the glory of God and everything in our lives. And he goes on, he says in this verse, which is your spiritual worship? To Jephthah, offering up his daughter was spiritual worship, but nowhere was that commanded by God. Because he doesn't know God, he treats God like a pagan God. And he fears God. He is afraid what will happen if he breaks his vow with God. So he offers he sacrifices his own daughter. What a horrible turn of events for the simple fact that he didn't know God. We need to know the God we worship so that our worship will be acceptable to him. Now, as the story continues, even in chapter 12, it becomes apparent and evident to us that Israel, although having been saved, along with Jephthah, still don't know God. Because in chapter 12, Jephthah and the Gileadites and the tribe of Ephraim now embark in civil war, revealing that they're still not worshiping God. They still don't know him. 
So when we bring this whole story together, it's all about worship. It's about God and our worship. We were created for worship. And God is worthy of our worship. And we serve whatever we worship. And so it's important that we know the God of our worship so that he will be glorified through our worship. The only human sacrifice that was ever pleasing to God, as I already stated, was the sacrifice of his own son. Because through him, the love of God was manifested. My prayer is that we would see the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. That he died for us. And that through him, when by faith we turn to Jesus, we died with him on the cross. And when he arose, we were raised to life. And so we don't need to offer any sort of sacrifice, human sacrifice, or other sort of burnt offerings. It's done. It's all done through the person and the work of Jesus. And our act of worship now is to be a living sacrifice, having committed ourselves wholly to the worship of God. So what do you worship? What is it you are serving? Do you know the God that you worship? Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work deeply within our hearts to reveal to us what, is it, what it is that we are actually worshiping. Lord, we can be distracted and, and we're really not much different than the Israelites or no different at all than the Israelites, Lord, who are so easily distracted and pulled away from you to worship other things, all kinds of things, Lord. Some that we've already kind of identified this morning, but it goes way beyond that, Lord, way beyond that. But I pray this morning, Lord, that we would realize the only God that is worth worshiping is you. And that we were created to worship you. You alone. And that we are to be a living sacrifice to you. So Father, show us the error of our way. Show us what we may be serving that's not really you. And I pray those things would fall to the ground and die. And I pray, Lord, that we would find joy and living as a sacrifice unto you. Living as a sacrifice unto you. There is no greater joy, Lord. Lord, our, our, our joy is not found in worldly comfort, worldly leisure, worldly peace. It's only found in Jesus Christ. And when we worship you and you alone, Lord, our hearts are full. Because then... We are fulfilling the thing for which you created us. 
So Lord, I pray that this morning that if there is anyone here who has never turned to you, has never turned to you through Jesus Christ, and have never trusted in Jesus for the salvation of their soul, for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would call to you this morning, Lord, and be saved and worship you. Cause us to grow in faith, Lord. Cause us to grow in our knowledge of you that our worship would glorify you. Do with us as is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.